0: Welcome to In-House Legal Uncovered, a major Lindsay and Africa podcast exploring what it takes to make it in-house. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In-House Legal Uncovered. Again, my name is Michael Sachs, and I'm a partner in Major Lindsay in Africa and our in-house counsel recruiting group. Uh, For those who are new, the theme of this podcast is candid and engaging conversations with leading individuals in the in-house counsel industry. Our topics are going to be different every month, but the gist is going to be how certain individuals have achieved success as an in-house attorney and what lessons they have to pass on that success to others who are behind them in their careers. Let's go right to today's guest. I'm really excited to introduce her. I am speaking with Deb Steiner. Uh, Deb is someone who I've only known well for the last couple of years, but she has quickly become one of my favorite people to talk to and learn from. Deb, welcome to the In-House Legal Uncovered podcast.
1: Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: Fantastic. I'm just going to give a quick uh, just paragraph about you so people know who who you are. Um, Deb is an accomplished legal professional with over 20 years of leadership and legal counseling experience. Uh, From early in her career, she has held high-level roles. And organizations reporting to top executives uh, currently as chief administrative officer and chief legal officer at rrd a five billion dollar fortune 500 company she advises executive leadership across domestic and international platforms operating in 34 countries around the world her decades of government regulatory private sector compliance and risk management experience qualified deb as a highly trained legal professional with core strengths in leadership counseling internal investigations relationships with regulators, and crisis and enterprise risk management. Deb lives in River Forest, where she is a single mother to three children who are adopted from the United States and Uganda. And while not trying to keep up with her three active kids, who are probably even more active now, Deb enjoys reading, traveling, volunteering with nonprofits, and watching college football. Do you have a team you root for, Deb, or no?
1: Oh, yeah, Michigan. Go blue all the way.
0: Yeah, that's my – well, I went to Illinois for undergrad, but since Illinois usually is not that good, I've adopted – at Michigan, because I went to law school there. So um perfect been fun lately. And I'm hoping I have my 25th uh, reunion this year, so I'm hoping to go back for a game this fall.
1: My view of you just went up a lot of, <laughs> a lot of steps there. So
0: good job. Anyway, forget about the We can just talk about this for the next 20 minutes and bore our audience. Um, Deb, let's just start with an easy one. To, uh, let's you know, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sort of where did you come from? How did you get into the current role? Just maybe walk through your career in just a couple minutes.
1: Okay, great. Um, I think I have a little bit of a non-traditional path to the general counsel role in particular, um, if you look back at my career. I started uh, nearly right out of law school, um, uh, went to a a firm here in Chicago for a very short period of time before I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office um, as an Assistant United States Attorney. While I was there, um, I prosecuted a variety of cases, kind of ending... Um, not too long after 9-11 uh, with terrorism investigations, and then left the office um, in 2003 to start the Inspector General's office, uh, the first of which in the state of Illinois for then Governor Bogoyevich. Um My mentor and friend Z. Scott and I were there for a couple of years until we left in the summer of 2005 and I joined Latham & Watkins. So then i was at latham and watkins doing white collar defense and internal investigations complex uh, complex litigation um and other litigation matters at the firm for again a ballpark of seven years so you have that first tranche seven years in the government then seven years at a law firm um, and in 2012 i joined uh, rrd as its associate general counsel responsible for litigation investigations and then very quickly thereafter the international platform so then in 2016 um, the bigger rr donnelly which was at the time near 11 billion dollar size company spun into three public companies um and i uh remained with rrd um, and became general counsel in october of 2016.
0: Great. And we're going to get back later to maybe your more circuitous route to get there, because I think there's some lessons in that as well. But let's talk about RRD, maybe describe the company a little bit, what it does, kind of what its culture is like. You've been there for a while, so there must be a lot that you like and you've actually yourself helped to shape. So maybe discuss that a little bit.
1: Yes, I I actually just passed 11 years at the company, which is really (laughs) hard to believe. And let me just talk about the company Um, as a legacy Chicago entity first, and then I'll tell you a little bit about our culture. So um, we're about 157 years old, I think. Um, We were a family company here in Chicago, um, printing books, catalogs, and magazines. So back in the day, those people who are our age or older uh, would know that we printed those big, chunky yellow pages that everybody had and white pages that everybody had delivered to their houses Um, and and then all the book titles you think about harry potter you think about um some of the series that are run through uh, the company was responsible for that but over time as we all are aware um the printing industry has evolved and we evolved along with it to continue doing some of that book catalog and magazine work but also to get into variable print so you say what's variable print it's the um It's where the data or the information on each page varies. So every page is coming out differently. If I print your bank statement, it may be on the same form as my bank statement, but the data is gonna be variable from you to me. Um, And so we do uh, bank statements and explanations of benefits and all kinds of um, manuals for healthcare. We also do things like um, big box stores. So when you walk into a Target, we can basically print from floor to ceiling in a target. The floor is a type of um, printed vinyl, the shelf strips are printed, the hanging um, signs are printed, the end caps of each aisle are printed pop-up things um, that in many cases we have trademarks and patents for. Um, And so we can print everything that goes on in, in a big box store. So now we're at a place where we have a wide variety of service offerings, including prior to the spin, Donnelly Financial's work, which was um, Edgar Online. And when our, our um, transactional colleagues would go, quote, to the printer, um, they would be going to Donnelly Financial. So then in 2016, we spun apart those businesses, Donnelly Financial's piece, off into a roughly $1 billion business. LSC, um, LSC Communications is our book catalog and magazine. And then RRD ended up with uh, the variable print. And so as we sit here today, now six years or so post-spin, we have packagings and labels and forms and global outsourcing business, um, several international locations, and then some uh, data insights work that we do. And that's who we are today, now a $5 billion business after we sold our logistics business in the last several years. Um, And now a much smaller kind of leaner, meaner uh, business going forward. In terms of our culture, um, one of the things I really love about RRD is um, people come and they stay. It's a very sticky place. And I think that's because of the people who are here and because of the environment that, you know, people well, my predecessor worked to create at the company uh, with a family background, just wanting people to know that they're they're welcome, they matter, uh, the work they're doing uh, matters. And that has continued to this day. And we see a real sticky uh, organization.
0: Yeah and it's helpful to and it's helpful to and imagine that over the years because so many people particularly those who are like my age remember Donnelly and the yellow pages and then different things that you have to kind of even you had to do with me a little bit is update in terms of what the company's doing now which is probably a constant thing that you're hearing um, from people so we talked about the company and the culture. So let's talk about the legal department. And I think we all know what a legal department does, but how do you think the company views legal? What do you think that the legal department does every day? How do you you view kind of your your mission? I always like to kind of hear how people phrase it, even though um, most people think they understand what the role would be. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think our role in legal is to uh, work alongside our business partners to balance the risk of the organization. I do not think that legal owns the risk insofar as saying we can or cannot do any of the following ma- matters that the business has brought to us. But I do think importantly that we point out what those risks are, we flag them for our business partners, we talk through what they are, and ultimately the business makes a decision absent violating the law, what would be uh, appropriate for the company going forward. The main thing that I have impressed upon our legal team, which is not novel, is legal cannot be the place uh, that dreams go to die. Legal needs to be a a place where people can bring ideas and we can work through them and find a path to yes. Um, I don't just want to be a place where people bring ideas or they're thinking outside of the box or they have new business and we just say no, 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 um, because that doesn't help the business grow it doesn't help us develop it develop along the path and it doesn't bring us a future so my real you know kind of emphasis over and over in time is find the path to yes that's our job as legal is to find a legal path to yes
0: and when we were talking before you mentioned how um you kind of have this you know circuitous route to be to getting where you, you you are now um, it is more uncommon for people who are litigators to become general counsels over time. Um, you know, my gut is that probably uh, particularly, uh, you know, people who've had public company experience, probably 20, 30 percent of them have litigation backgrounds So the majority have some other background like transactional. So um, I know those specifics uh, things that happen in every case, but. How did you get to like from being like a litigator with that kind of experience that you're talking about and obviously a passion for it and a love for it and all those things to being a general counsel? Maybe just not the steps exactly, but how did just you how did how did you how were you able to do that when maybe another litigator might not have been able to get to that point?
1: Yeah, the, I think there's a little bit of luck involved there. I think, mm-hmm. I you know, being honest with myself, a couple of a uh, couple of different things aligned in terms of the star, stars aligning for this to happen for me. One is uh, that my predecessor at the company, Sue Bettman, um, had worked closely with me. And I think throughout time, before I even really realized it, was training me um, and introducing me to different aspects of being a public company general counsel. And I'm super grateful for that. Also, when the time of the spin, um, when the spins were announced in August of 2015, over, all of us were very much in shock. It was a closely held secret at the company for obvious reasons. Um, But once I had some time to settle into that, I started to think about whether or not I would be interested in being general counsel of one of those resulting companies. And I went and talked with our then general counsel about it and said, I might be interested. Um, So then over time, not knowing what those behind the scenes conversations looked like, um, the man who had been named CEO of RRD came to talk to me about whether or not I would consider being a general counsel. Um, And so he and I had kind of a rigorous back and forth about that. And ultimately, he did ask me to serve as general counsel of the new RRD. So after that happened, that was in March of 2016. I really spent the next um, six months or so learning. Um, I I took it very seriously. I didn't sit back and say, well, I'm a lawyer. I I know how to do it um, or I'll hire somebody else to do it. I worked with some of our key law firms and sat for days Just learning what it means to be a securities lawyer and learning, um, you know, what's in an 8K and what's not and when do you need one? Um, Some of the very basic steps um, that may have come up in a law school class somewhere along the way, but that I had not focused time on. um, We had some excellent partners who really dug in deep and spent time with me. In addition to that, obviously, I had a team. I'm not a a one-woman show in the legal department, and so I knew that my partners um, working with me would be super important, and you helped me with some of those Um, throughout that time, um, getting Rithu Vig in place, and she and I uh, really worked together on the general counsel. But the truth is, Mike, I grew into it. Um, I became general counsel October 1st of 2016, and I was still learning. And yeah. I was still growing, and I was running uphill in mud, as I like to say, for for a while after that. Um, but I just didn't back down. I was determined that I could learn it, and I did. And so yeah. it's been exhilarating, and and that kind of learning what's in front of me has become a benchmark of my career since that time.
0: Yeah, and just one just one follow up on that. I mean, I'm sure there was some luck. It probably happens with anybody's career, but at the same time, you position yourself well because when they it sounds to me, it could be wrong, but when you um when the spin was announced and then people came to you and talked about you know saying you should be a GC you must have given them some confidence during your time there over whatever was three or four years that even though you had that litigation background you could be that GC Um, was that kind of primarily from like the conversations you'd had the counsel you'd given the curiosity or um I mean anything you can kind of point to maybe that kind of was maybe put you in that position that when luck occurred, you were there to be able to take advantage of it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I would highlight everything that you just said as part of that, but the biggest one that jumps out to me is judgment. And so I feel this now that I'm the one in the seat and somebody says, who's your successor? So much of that rests on judgment. Does a person have the ability to make a decision make a good decision and go with it. And this is not about never making mistakes. It's never about that. It's about, I've considered the options in front of me, and here's what my best judgment says we should do, and being able to take steps toward that. I think in my trajectory pre-general counsel, what you see is that and again, I, this wasn't on my radar at the time, but I was given, I was being given increasing amounts of responsibility across the organization and interacting with an increasingly high levels of people, including when you think about taking on the international platform. Um, the international president, who now is our COO here at the company, he and I were out running around the world, meeting with our international team members uh, and advising them. And so that was part of me learning how to be a businesswoman and not just the lawyer, so to speak, because a huge part of being chief legal officer is being a bit a strategic business partner and not a lawyer who sits in the corner and says, I'm just here to answer legal questions.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's helpful. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you as a guest is because I do think based on what I've observed, you're really good with people, a good people leader. So let's just start with the basics. So how big is your current team? How many lawyers do you have? How many uh, you know, other profession, you know, personnel you know, that approximately don't need exact numbers?
1: Yeah. So uh, from a global perspective, I have about 22 people in our legal department. That includes lawyers, paralegals, admin, kind of everybody who's supporting our legal team. That is a very small team. I think some of that is driven um, by the risk that we experience. So for example, if you look at a general counsel at a pharma company, uh, they need to have a lot more legal hands on deck for the types of things that they're experiencing. Um, and so my team is 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 small but mighty. I do have some other teams that we could weave in right here real yeah, quick. Please. Um, so in 2017, I took on the environmental health and safety team. Um, that was a really nice fit to my p- portfolio, in my opinion, because if you think about EH&S, it's a very legal, heavy, regulatory, heavy group. Um, And it also gave us in legal a look into the facilities. So instead of being legal, sitting over in the corporate office, just thinking about legal questions all day, now we've got environmental health and safety as part of our team, and they're in the facilities all day long. So from a U.S. perspective, we have 11 people in our EHS team, and those 11 work as consultants to um, the facilities in the U.S. and Canada and advising them on um, safety and environmental issues. So that's a great team to be a part of. I also have internal communications and PR, uh, another small but mighty team. We have a couple of women that work in that group. Yeah. Um, and we've really upped the ante on communications inside of the company. The notion there being that we, we um, espouse that we are a communications company, will communicate through your documents or through your packaging or through, you know, whatever it is you need us to communicate through. And we weren't doing a very terrific job communicating ourselves. Um, So we've really developed a rigorous internal communication team, um, along with doing a lot more PR in the last five years or so. And then last but not least, I do have last but definitely not least, I do have (laughs) um, HR, I took responsibility for HR in April of 2020. So I just past three years of that if you think about the last three years it's a really unfair time for me to become responsible for HR uh, but we got through it um, I have about three 300 HR team members worldwide wow. um, and they've been really hard at work these last three years just kind of keeping everything stable for the company and uh working really hard through a labor crisis so it's been it's been quite a ride
0: so that, that's all that's that's the only that's the only people you know. that's kidding.
1: it I can't I mean, there's probably others. Just kidding. There's not. Yeah, that's it. Um, and one of the things I often say, Mike, is there's no way that I could lead uh, or be responsible for the number of people and groups that I do, and l- except for the fact that I have fantastic teams. Yeah. Because if legal was broken, however, whatever the size yeah. of it was, if it was 22 people or 200 people, if legal's broken, I can't take on EHS. If EHS is broken, I can't take on HR. And so this is because of, this is to the credit of my incredible team members that uh, we're able to run it the way that we are.
0: Perfect segue. So just talking, we're going to talk a little bit about teams for a while. Um, You know, it's interesting. I asked this question once before. You hear the phrases like, oh, somebody's a, a people manager. Sometimes somebody's a leader. You know, do you think of yourself as a manager? Do you think of yourself more as a leader? What's your like philosophy when it comes to just know, how you how you have reports and how you have the responsibility that we just discussed. It might not be that pie in the sky, but just what do you think about um, when you think about what your role is?
1: I I flinch every, every time someone calls me a boss. It's <laughs> a very um, that feels like a loaded word to me. Um, if you want to label me, label me as a leader. I'm leading these groups with you or you've heard me say i'm responsible for these teams i don't like the notion of boss because it sounds like i've bossed you to do this i've bossed you to do that you know whatever i my teams are number one very flat which can be hard there are good things and bad things about having flat organizations yes but number two i i try to live what i ask of my team members which is there is no job beneath you at this organization if somebody needs me to review a contract I'm not on the contracting team I'm gonna review a contract um, and I'm probably not as good at it as Rocco and his team are the head of our contracting division but if I'm needed in that space I'm gonna go do it and if somebody in HR needs to conduct an investigation and that's not their you know that's not their sweet spot we're gonna train them up or we're gonna figure out how to do it because we're an all hands on deck organization. So yes, I I am responsible for these groups, but I lead by empowering the people who are working with me to do the work themselves. I am not a micromanager. I understand that mistakes are going to happen and we're going to keep going. Um, And so I kind of have a lot of grace um, for my team members working through it. And then last on this point, I would say I'm committed to, to developing people. While I want to keep my team here with me forever because I'm fond of my team, I also know that people have hopes, dreams, and aspirations for themselves, and I want to help them find their way to their uh, next great job as well when it's
0: appropriate. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think, um, I mean, do you think, again, I I said, I think of you just based on what I've heard. We both know people in common that have been on your teams before. Um, I've heard all the positive things about working with you. I mean, do you think that you have kind of some people I feel like they have kind of innate leadership acumen. Some people that i have been along the way, I feel like maybe they had to learn to get it at some point. Maybe they learned some tough lessons. You've had government experience. You've had law firm experience. You've had in-house experience. Just what has that journey been like for you? Can you think of experiences that were positive, negatives? Or you mentioned Z. Scott as a mentor, Sue Bettman before. Um, what's, what's, how, do you, how do you get there? How do you get there for, for people who are listening to this who might be You know earlier in their career
1: yeah i i think for me it was both i think that the the um as i've called it after an interview once the je ne sais quoi that some people have that almost innate thing that you can't explain yeah um that they just have it that they didn't learn i think i had some of that but i also think that a lot of this was developed and i would encourage people who are earlier in their career to not decide oh i'm not a leader Oh, I don't have leadership abilities. Oh, I don't have anything to offer. Because in my opinion, nine times out of 10, that's going to be incorrect. If you sought out and received a legal degree, there is something in you that is leading. And I remember Z Scott, um, those of you who don't know her, she's a a longtime lawyer in the Chicago area, who's now the president of Chicago State University. She and I were at the US Attorney's Office together. And I, I once was lamenting to her, I don't have any leadership experience. And she said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, what do you mean it's interesting? And she said, how many cases do you have right now? And I don't know what the number was. And how many agents do you have working on those cases? And how are you planning for them and executing investigations? And how are you managing all of this? And she said, who is leading these agents if you're not leading them? And I thought, oh. Oh. So I am, I was developing leadership responsibilities when I didn't even know it because no, as a prosecutor, I'm sure any of the agents I worked with would be like, you weren't my leader, but we were working together on a team and someone was setting the direction for each of those cases. And it was me. So start looking at the ways that you're operating with your law license and thinking about what am I leading? I'm at a law firm and I'm an associate. I'm not a partner of anything. Okay. What are you leading? Are you working with paralegals who are setting up systems of document and discovery? What piece are you leading? And then lean into that and keep asking for more.
0: I think that's it. I mean, it's interesting. In certain parts of my career, I've had people talk about, you know, I want leaders on my team and the Mike Sachs from 15 years ago, is like, what does that mean? We're all, we don't have anybody who reports to us. What does that really mean? And now that I'm older and things like that, I do think about, oh, now I see exactly what that is. People who are proactive, people who can drive something on their own, even when that's not their job responsibility, they kind of do that. And so um, that is helpful to kind of know. And the mentor part of it is really important as well. So when you're, you know, I think, you know, A lot of management can come down to the kind of people you have on your team. You've given so many compliments already about either mentors you've had or the people who are on your teams now or that you've worked with before. Do you have, I'm sure you've had, you know, great people on your team, people who weren't getting the job done as well. Do you have different philosophies and how you interact with them depending on their performance? Like, for instance, starting with your top players, like how do you think about managing them? Uh, People who are terrific and how you make sure that they're focused on the task and getting ahead and also that they respect you and they continue to be that, that A player that you already identified them being.
1: I think for those top performers, what I've found in my experience is that people who are excelling and people who are doing really well, what they want most is more okay yes they want to hear you're doing a good job i have confidence in you the words matter the words that you use with people matter but even more than that it's a i have another idea for us to run to ground and i'm going to give it to you and you take it and you run with it and you bring all your ideas and we'll talk about it together because i think when you have a leader who's high performing what they want to do is excel at the level they're at And figure out how to go to the next level. And so let them do that. Find a path for them to do that. Allow them to sign up for seminars, including travel, you know, whatever they need to do to get to that next level, because that support from you in the background, which is what I got from the Z's and the Sus and others of this world who really stood beside me, was that that extra push from somebody I respected to say, you can take the next step. So let's take it. Your question also uh, addressed, you know, people who are more struggling, I actually think that the people in your organization who may not be performing as well, need more of your time, not less. And that can be frustrating as a leader, because you're thinking to yourself, I don't have time to bring someone along. But it's quite possible that the person who needs to be brought along can be brought along. And if you give them a little bit of extra support, or if you provide them feedback that you're hearing from your internal clients, uh, there can be a shift and things can improve greatly. And we've seen that in our organization as
0: well. Yeah, I mean, I think if you identify your play, it's a great point to make. I mean, if you identify your players as sort of A players, B players, and C players, and I know it's never as simple as that, but like your A players, great. Your C players, unfortunately, probably, you know, some tougher messages, I'd imagine your B players are probably the most complicated in many ways. And that's probably where you're spending your time because there's this – there's for whatever reason, they're a B player. There must be something they're doing right and maybe something that they're not yet doing right. Um, and probably those yes, are the sure. ones who are the most fraught for all sorts of things because you probably don't want to lose them, but you um, – there's probably – you would. it's not as bad as maybe an A player and it's sort of all these different complications – that's got to be complicated over time, particularly maybe when you have an international team as well. And some of those people you're not seeing every day, even before COVID. Absolutely
1: right. Absolutely right. And one of the ways that it's been helpful for me to think about this is an HR exercise that a lot of our legal um, uh, Uh, partners have probably experienced themselves. And that's the nine box. In other words, there's going to be some people on your nine box who are in that upper right, who, you know, are going to soar and they're a future general counsel. And, you know, you're going to help push them in that way. But there are a lot of people you have that are fives. They're just doing great where they are. They don't want more. They definitely don't want less. (laughs) They're not aspiring to the next box, but they're really a strong, strong, strong utility player Who's, you know, good right where they are. And I think that the notion that we as leaders have to think about how to differently treat people across those um, divisions of the so-called nine box is something that was very new to me um, as a general counsel. But something I've really leaned into and understanding that person is a great utility player. They're a soldier. They're always Johnny on the spot. They have answers right. Um, And that's enough. That's what that's what we need from them.
0: God, I'm so old. I remember when the nine box was the four box at the end of the day. I can't believe it's <laughs> now a nine I I can't believe it's a nine box now. Oh god. It's like it's Cuban keeps going up. Um so you know, i one thing I've always wondered because I, I look at it through the prism of just mostly the general counsel. We occasionally talk to CEOs how involved does a ceo or maybe even a chro get in like the daily management of the team i mean do you do you talk with a ceo do they know the challenges do you talk with your chro nowadays you are you are in that role but like what who else is helping you kind of talk through these issues that's not illegal and, and how often is that
1: yeah um i think probably every company is different um you know i've talked to enough of my Chief legal counsel peers to know that it, it happens a little bit different in every organization i've worked for two ceos now and i can tell you um, from my perspective both as um, chief legal officer and chro both of my um ceos have been very involved i communicate with them regu- regularly what do i mean by regularly most of the time daily um, we're talking about things that are popping up. Neither of them were micromanagers, um, trying to actually get into my work or do my work for me, but more understanding the issues that were out there that I was facing and what my plans were, uh, to solve those was a big piece with both of the, uh, CEOs that I've worked for. Additionally, I would say that peer relationship, we call it the executive leadership team at our company. So you yeah. got the CEO and then you have his or her direct reports. Um, in our case, those direct reports and I have a ton of uh, contact. You know, in the virtual world, in the in the office world, all the time we're talking regularly. And of course, over time, there's about seven of us. Some of those will be standouts as as you know, close to you people who you're talking to um, again daily, and really just being able to bounce things off of them. As CLO, um, when we had a CHRO, she and I were very intentional about talking at least once a week, uh, if not more, to talk about what was going on both in the executive leadership layer as well as what was going on in the areas I was responsible for. I do think intentionality matters because we're all so busy. If you don't set aside time to be with someone, you'll miss an opportunity to, to get the wisdom that each other has to share.
0: Yeah. So speaking of busy, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, we didn't talk about the COVID age a little bit. Um, it's obviously the question everyone wants to know, you know, remote, hybrid, being in the office, you know, but from my standpoint, what I'm just curious about is whatever the the culture is at RRD, you know, how all these things we've talked about, how do you, how do you keep these relationships? How do you bring on new people on board? How do you have all these challenges depending on what the culture is? And, every day, I just see every single different uh, situation. Just have lunch with somebody once a month in the office. Talk to most companies these days, three or four days a week, every week. It's got to be different for every company. So how do you kind of It's probably somebody who's also helping to set the culture as well? How do you then take whatever the outcome of that and then be able to lead a team like you do?
1: Yeah, the uh, the pandemic was difficult um, as a manufacturing company. We of course had the vast majority of our employees uh, at work throughout. All of our facilities were deemed to be essential. Um, if you think back to that time in 2020 when there were all these government orders coming out almost daily about which uh, organizations were essential and which were not, yep. um, members of our legal team were, you know, really all over that and covering, were essential, were essential, were essential. So our facilities kept operating. Our leadership and facilities kept going on site. And so of our 31,000 employees, most w- have been to work for the last three years. The exception to that is our corporate offices. So you think about our two offices in the Chicagoland area and then our sales offices around the country. Um, we went remote when everybody got sent home in late March of 2020. Um, and it's been kind of a trickleback effect since then. What we've decided to do so far is allow groups to decide. So, for example, if tax, if our tax department wants to have everybody in a couple days a week, then everybody goes in a couple days a week. But as CHRO, I have not made a more broad announcement, hey, everybody, you're back three days a week or whatever our decision would be. I think I've resisted that, Mike, because um, particularly last year in 2022 with the with the labor strife that we were having as a country, thinking about where I would get employees if people were frustrated, they lost some of their flexibility. Um, I was very concerned about the impact of that. I think now that things have calmed down a little bit in that regard, I don't think we're all the way there yet, um, but we're pondering as an executive leadership team when it might make sense to require people to come to offices a set number of days a week but all of that is in the discussion period so hopefully no one from RRD is listening just
0: kidding <laughs> i'm positive i'm positive they're not deb i'm positive they're I, not. Agree. Um, I
1: agree
0: um, <laughs> and of course this, that's only going to go live for like a couple months so Lord only knows what yeah. might happen over the it next could be couple over months by then right exactly mm-hmm. exactly well and then but creating also that you know uh, depending on whatever that is whether it's no days in the office five days in the office you got different people maybe with different schedules and young parents and older and immunocompromised and all that. Like, are there, I'm sure there's a million different ways that you try to keep that positive culture. You started the interview by saying it's sticky. People don't really leave a lot unless they had a much better opportunity. How do you, um, how have you, Yeah, are there certain ways that you've had to cope over the last three years to kind of keep that stickiness, keep people at the company, even though everyone's kind of going at different beats these days?
1: getting on video is huge so i think back sometime sometimes to early 2020 our cio would, at the time was like listen guys we have google meet it's really cool instead of picking up the phone and calling me you can actually send me a link and we can see each other And I don't think I was alone in the company, I know I wasn't, in eye-rolling and saying, whatever, (laughs) I don't need to see you, just because you're in the Warrenville office and I'm in the Chicago office, we don't need to get on video, whatever. And then two months later, the pandemic hits, right? So one of the biggest things that we've encouraged people to do is see each other. Get on screen you know, actually have this interaction that you and I are having right now, because it's very different than if you were interviewing me and I was sitting here on my phone answering questions, staring at, you know, the walls in my home office. Um, And so I think encouraging people to look at one another in the eyes, even though it's not in person, encouraging people to have those social kind of water water cooler conversations that they would have in the office, but just happen to be having on screen anyway. Particularly in in 2020 and a little bit into 2021, we had happy hours and games online and, you know, gathering of teams just to be together. No purpose. The legal team's getting together. We're not going to talk about legal. We're all just going to go get a glass of wine and catch up a little bit. So I think part of that, you had to be so intentional uh, to make sure that it was mattering for people. But there is no question, Mike, it has been incredibly hard to bring people on and onboard them and get them into our culture in the last three years. Um, Last but not least, I would mention that we have what's called a meeting in the middle. Um, The history of these meetings is Mm. we had a big office in Warrenville and we had another big office at Wacker and once a month we would meet in the middle of the office. And just get news updates and get um you know have one of our business leaders talk about what's going on um, share service anniversaries at the company or new hires we pivoted that to a virtual meeting sometime in late 2020 or 2021 i think we just dropped them for a while but then i said hey wait let's do them online and so we took both warrenville and wacker together and once a month we get on a screen together on average there's probably 350 people that join those calls and we talk, we get to see each other. Obviously that's a lot of people, so they're not on one screen, but you know, you see lots of faces, we share what's going on, we answer questions, and I think that's really helping us to stay connected. It's been super important.
0: I also found that point about, it you a good point early on about the video part of it. Like I find that like there are people who I've seen on video over and over again, and then when I do meet them in person, it doesn't seem like I haven't seen them for a year because you do see them in video.
1: Exactly. Versus
0: I think yeah. if you were just doing a lot of phone calls in a little video it would feel like man i really don't know you at all like the video is a fairly it's not the same as person i get that but i think as the years have gone on i think i've realized like it's fairly it's fairly good at the end of the day yeah um by the way i do have heart palpitations every time i mention google meet because that was the first thing i was trying to master in march 2020 and i was always the person who had the 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 noise and the this and can somebody put it on mute and so I feel like I've mastered Teams and Zoom and all that, but I still don't think I've mastered Google Meet. So I still have palpitations about that when you mention it. But.
1: I, I understand. <laughs> I feel that deeply. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Appreciate that. So just a couple more questions. So look, when you think about, you know, you know other general counsels out there, they, through your networks, you know, who you, you interact with, now, what are the, what are the, you know, obviously mentioning any names, but like, what are the common mistakes or errors that are sort of glaring to you when you see that from a leadership perspective? Like what are common mistakes you think leaders make that uh, maybe you've observed it in your company from time to time or other general counsels or even doesn't even have to be legal. Like what are what are things people should be avoiding? Don't sit in the corner.
1: Hmm. Don't whatever team you're on at whatever level you're on, never sit in the corner. You're supposed to be part of a team, which means you're involved in it. And if you're sitting in the corner waiting for someone to invite you or waiting for somebody to notice you, you've already lost Okay? you have to be in the thick of it in order to be noticed and frankly, in order to be elevated. Um, One of the most common uh, kind of speeches, I don't like the word speech, but um, discussions that I lead at the company is lead from where you are. We have lots of hourly employees, tons of hourly employees, and some of them have aspirations. And so when I sit with them, I say, lead from where you are. How are you doing on your line in the factory? Like, are you the the first one there every day, making sure everything's in order and everybody's ready so that you're the next person to be line leader? Or are you the last to show up who never talks to anybody who looks down and, you know, barely gets their work done? Lead from where you are. Because when you lead at whatever spot you are in the company, then you're next up. For the next leadership position so the biggest mistake i've seen people make particularly actually in the in the legal community is i'm just legal you know i i know you guys can't see me but what i'm doing to mike right now is putting on like blinders like i'm a horse i can't look to the left or the right i'm just legal i'm looking straight ahead i just answer legal questions i don't bring anything else to anything else to this organization that's crap you're not just legal legal you're a business leader And you should be in there, you should be understanding the organization, you should be understanding how the business works, you should be having meetings with your business partners, and pretty soon, you'll be looked at as a potential successor for things you never even dreamed of. I didn't think 10 years ago, I was going to end up being CHRO and GC at a $5 billion company, it wasn't even on my radar. Um, But get yourself in there and you have no idea where it could lead you.
0: Yeah agree 100% with everything you're saying. And By the way, let the record reflect that might be the first use of the word crap on the in-house legal uncovered podcast. So I um, appreciate you, appreciate you sending this day. But also, just are Yeah, exactly. But I do agree. It's ownership too, right? It's ownership mm-hmm. and like caring about it and not just sort of like, I always hate when people talk about, and I, I use this phrase too sometimes, it's like, oh, what's this? what's this new gig about? And things like that. I'm like, you know, if you think about it as a gig, you're probably not the right fit for it at the end of the day and I get I've used that phrase you know a bunch of times but I, when people say it I kind of cringe a little bit because I just don't it's think it's
1: more I'm than the phrase fit. it's more than the phrase it's the it's the attitude that's coming behind it it's it's ever, it's exactly. all part
0: of it mm-hmm. exactly so deb for you i mean you you you're in this role and how do you think about how you want to grow as a leader what's the what's the growth opportunity for you that you you know discussed internally with colleagues or what do you what, what how do you want to grow as a leader
1: one of the things that I recently said, uh, not that recently probably, um, uh, to our chief operating officer is I would like to better understand how to manage a P&L. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I have lots of experience now with our business leaders, particularly since I have a scope that looks across the organization with all my different areas, touches lots of different things. But I still feel like I lack that understanding of, um, how are our business leaders, uh, our BU leaders, really leading through a PL? How do they make decisions about what we need more of, what we need less of? What are they seeing? How are they doing that? I think for me, um, I have just enough curiosity in me that I want to know that next thing. Um, and so, you know, part of that is probably adding a few meetings to my schedule so I can observe and watch that. Um, watch that being built from the sidelines and right. see what that looks like. Um but I also think that when you do that, you will be a better lawyer because you'll understand what's going into decision making, you'll understand how we think about our clients, you'll understand how we're servicing our clients and that is to the better of the entire company and not just you as a leader.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. When you um you know, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you when we started this podcast was you know, Deb, I've known you as someone who's you know really passionate about the things that you care about and you're excited about. We talked earlier on. You have three you know kids you've adopted. You just are somebody with a lot of passion, I think, for life and other things. And yet you have this you know general counsel job that you know, you know lawyers. It can be a little analytical. It can be state sometimes. How do you sort of um, combine that 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 passion that I just see in you every time we talk? Um, and and also this, this, this job that, that, that sometimes can be unpassionate for, for lack of a better, for lack of a better phrase, how do you, how do you combine those in your life?
1: Yeah, the, the passion for the job thing uh, years ago, uh, probably 15 years ago, um, I was looking at a job description for something and it was describing work that they do. And they said, one of the criteria for the job is you were passionate about X, which was what they did, or could become passionate about X. So as we sit here 11 years post me joining RRD, was I passionate about printing or communication when I came to this company? Absolutely not. Not at all. I
0: thought you were going to say yes. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah, Yes, (laughs) I was. No, I wasn't even remotely passionate about it. But One of the biggest pieces of feedback that I get, this is just ironic almost, Mike, because I don't remember this question on your list, but one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get from our board, both our public board and now that we've gone private, our private board, you're so passionate about this. Um, So part of that, I think, is I'm just built that way. It's one of my kids' favorite. Why are you built that way? They say this to me all (laughs) the time. But anyway, I do think part of it is just who I am. But more importantly, can you learn to be passionate? about the way that you're going to spend at least 40 hours a week of your life. If you can't learn to be passionate about it, maybe it's not the right fit. And then when you're done being passionate about it, maybe it's time for the next right fit. Because I do think that life is short. We spend a lot of our time working and you may as well find a way to be passionate about what you're doing in that time period. And that's somehow what I've done. I'm very passionate about our company. I'm passionate about our people. I'm yeah. passionate about our products, passionate about what we do and how we do it. Um, it's in me now. Um, and I have to work for it sometimes. It's not like every day, all day. I'm you know <laughs> just joyful and overjoyed to be, you know, at my company working away. Um, but I think that the passion helps keep me uh, keep me on edge and ready for the next great thing that comes onto my desk,
0: yeah, and it could come from different ways of it, 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 different ways at your job, right? It could come. Absolutely. Sometimes I think about over the years, I've also thought about it from like new people who joined the company who either were under, you know, on our team or peers. I'm like, wow, I'm really excited to be working with this person, or I'm yeah. not excited about working with this person. Yes. And that's going to be hard for me at the end of the day mostly the former, but like, those are mm-hmm. things where we have a new product out or a new client that I'm working with. And I'm so jazzed about that. And so it can come from different ways, not just, wow, I'm excited about work every day. Cause we all know, particularly with a lot of kids, it's not always easy to get excited about going into the office every day.
1: Absolutely. Right. And one of the things my first CEO once said to me is uh, something along the lines of, I think you have professional ADHD in other words, <laughs> like I get something, I dig into it, I wrestle it to the ground, I feel really good about it. And then I'm like, what's next? What you got? <laughs> what's next? And so I also think some of this is knowing yourself well, the, you know, being self-reflective, understanding what you need to keep yourself engaged, because that's right. going to be part of it as well.
0: Right. That's like my son who has a little ADHD, and he definitely will go from like one thing to as soon as he's, there's no transition. That pajamas, bed, bed, wake yeah. up. <laughs> Screen. it's just, it's basically one thing to another one so look just to close out you know i know this this last question is you know a question you're probably going to get all the time you know you you know some of the people listening to this podcast are going to be earlier in their careers they're just starting out they're at a firm they're students they're new in-house lawyers what's that what's that common philosophy what's that one piece of advice or whatever two piece of advice that you'd say hey i didn't cover this yet today mike didn't ask me the question but like here's the way here's what your north star should really be if you want to attain success luck is going to come into it but what's the way you can kind of manage your own luck
1: be curious learn everything you can and then always 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 as I said in the lead where you are uh, comment always raise your hand always raise your hand who can help with doesn't even matter what it is raise your hand Get in there. Be that person who's always willing to jump onto what's next, because that curiosity and that constant learning is going to drive your career in places you had no idea was going. In my experience.
0: <laughs> Spot on, hundred percent. I, I agree completely. The curiosity is highly underrated um, yep. for people. So. Deb, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, always great to talk to you. Fully expected you'd have terrific insights, and indeed you did. So hope you had a good time talking about the topics as well.
1: So much fun. Thank you for having me.
0: That will do it for this episode. We would love to get your feedback on these podcasts. Feel free to email me anytime at msax@mlaglobal.com. at mlaglobal.com. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and any suggestions for future topics of episodes. Thank you for listening and see you next month. Thank you for listening to In-House Legal Uncovered. Join us next time as we dig into another topic that will better help you navigate your in-house legal career.